So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you, um, Tom. Uh, we are so grateful that you were sharing your time with us and, uh, and your research and knowledge. So um, to give the audience like a brief intro in case they don't know you, um, Dr. Tom Logan, he um, did his um, Doctor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan and um, he um, studies the risk um, to and resilience of urban systems and he is focused on transforming how to design and realize um, our cities in the face of climate change and he uses risk science systems engineering and modeling to adapt our cities and I think that's such an important field nowadays because we keep designing and building things based on a climate that's you know hundreds of years ago <laughs> so um, yeah so it's thank you so much and how, our first question usually is how did you figured that you are interested in science and research and going into this field was it some like childhood dream or did something happen that it elicited this like you know passion for science or um yeah affinity to go into this field and research yeah well thank you very much for the invitation um well i guess I was always like a really outdoorsy person um, and my family was really outdoorsy when we grew up and I and I think that like um, ultimately like ingrained like a love of the outdoors and the environment uh, and you know as we start to see those things changing um, or at, in a, at intermediate school and um, high school being like setting up and being part of the environmental clubs and things um, kind of really set me on that path and then just really loved math. Um, did a degree, did my undergrad degree in engineering, but at the end of my undergrad, I still felt like there were, I had a lot of questions that hadn't been answered. Like how do we, uh, and I felt like engineers, especially civil engineers were kind of being trained just to, you know, do as they were told, like build another road, uh, Build, build a bridge, like this and that, but not really think about why or is this actually solving the problem that we're trying to address? And I think that was really kind of what, um, especially in a, in a way like that made it sustainable and that really pushed me into um, thinking and like in the last, uh, the end of my undergrad, I was like, maybe, maybe a PhD is the way to go and like research is the way to go. Um, I guess like also my mom was a, is a research uh, person just in the uh, horticulture industry or agricultural industry. So different, but um, yeah. So it was just that there were more questions and I, I feel like, um, I still feel like there are, <laughs> there, are, there are always more questions, but especially in this like changing, changing environment. Um, so yeah. Yeah, thank you for that answer. And um, you know, it's uh, it's a really it's really important questions that you have, and it's kind of surprising that 
it's 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 surprising that you kept having them and kept following them because I feel like most of the time when we go through um, regular you know like regular education after a while we kind of sometimes lose that and just do whatever everyone else is doing so it's really uh, interesting that you you know kept <laughs> kept going <laughs> with those questions and and now we we talk here about you know this very important research so i think you kind of already you know predicted the very predictable future what will be important yeah so um and like for the you know i i wrote to you about the recent paper you published and uh, if you have like any kind of peek behind the curtain story how this project came together was it really hard uh did nobody like want to help you or was it something people said oh yeah you know was it kind of easy to get people on board and work on it or were there a lot of obstacles i don't know whatever you <laughs> have <laughs> thank you um uh, i feel like yeah it's been like an interesting like i've i've yeah it, i love i love it i've loved it but it's been an interesting uh journey because the and my phd i feel like this kind of is like a, a natural like kind of step out of my PhD. Um, but my PhD was such a weird mix. Um, and I don't think anyone or even like potentially me knew exactly what it was doing um, because I really was interested in like uh, urban stuff, like urban systems and like the built environment. But I was also really interested in risk and resilience. And and, and I, was, I was doing a paper like one of my first papers of my PhD, which was really just like a side project that I was kind of interested in, um, was like how how far do people have to travel to get to their like nearest supermarket, like in a city? So like, I was living in Baltimore at the time and um, doing my master's at Johns Hopkins. Well, I started my PhD at Johns Hopkins and my advisor moved. So I started my PhD there. And... I was like, how far, like everyone talks about food deserts and I was like, well, okay, let's actually measure this and, and then look at the equity and the underlying like, injustices in this access to different uh, urban amenities. And then like, as we were going, I was working on that, that my PhD was on like risk and resilience. And I was like, what, what is resilience? Like, what is that actually? What what does that mean? Like we on one hand, a lot of people talk about infrastructure, and like you have to really quickly get infrastructure back on online, but that's just the like that's like a very civil engineering focus. Like let's get this existing structure like back working as quickly as possible, even if it didn't really work for a lot of people in the first place. And then on the other hand of resilience, you have this like more. Um, a qualitative approach which is thinking about like social capacity and um, and both of these are really important but I, I, I was thinking because I was thinking about access I was like well if you can't, don't have access to the things that you need like on a day-to-day -day basis like like that that's not you're not resilient like or your community is not uh, not resilient especially if you lose that access um, 
And so that was kind of where we started to merge the, the access, like the, some of the urban research, um, although now obviously like we're thinking about access much more broadly than just in cities, and that risk and resilience perspective. And that was kind of where we like said, well, how, what's sea level rise going to do to this? And how is that going to change over time? Um, and because we had been like working on this uh, this code for, for ages, I'm like, could we do how how much like how big could we go um like we've been looking at individual cities uh can we can we just look at um can we look at the entire coast of of the us and like the code took months to run so it was like <laughs> we were just like let's kind of hope that uh yeah let's Let's just hope that we didn't stuff anything up and let it run and see what it shows uh, when it comes out and compare that with like the direct impacts. Um, and so it was kind of like, there was that challenge and we had like, um, I was chatting with one of my, uh, the people that I did my PhD with and she was on board and she's based at the uh, University of Maryland, um, kind of looking at similar, similar things with a coastal community there. And so it wasn't really like, it wasn't so much of like a, a challenge of getting people on board. It was just that we didn't really talk about it that much um, because it was once you got the code running, we just like waited and crossed our fingers um, that it didn't break. <laughs> like, um, and then we're just like we're so interested in what the results were showing and how and what that meant for how we, uh, how we adapt and how we think about adaptation. Yeah, thank you for giving us kind of this background story um, about your thought process and the thinking of, you know, how difficult would it be for us to access our everyday needs in case, you know, we can't like use our cars and, you know, have access to things that are so fragile. Um, if anything changes a flood or you know <laughs> sea rise and it's it's really interesting that we kind of keep ignoring this fact right especially in US uh, cities and in suburban areas you you need to drive a few miles to the next groceries and without a car for most people it's kind of impossible to do that um, so um, the we are for sure not built to to have this resilience and um so that's why this is so important and i wanted to ask you i know i wanted to ask you later but it kind of just uh, folds into this discussion i don't know if you heard about this you know that design to have like 15 minutes that you can access everything you need in 15 minutes um, walking distance, right? That European cities, I think in Netherlands, people want to design cities that way. But then on social media came the came this weird theory that uh, politicians want to cage people into 15 minutes walking distance, you know, combined with COVID. So 
how how do you deal with things like that? Like how do you communicate your science in a way that people don't make up these stories? Kind of, <laughs> I don't know how to solve this, but I don't know. Maybe you have some some good science communication insights story from your side. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't. I don't have really. Uh, solution to offer but if you I don't know did you have anything like that did you experience anything like that and how did you kind of cope with it yeah well so I um last year I released a study on measuring the 500 largest cities in the US and uh, largest um, cities in New Zealand uh, for their like, x minute like how good are they in terms of Uh, 15 minutes city ness. Um, so I've been involved a lot in that space as well. Um, and so a lot of the New Zealand media um, talk to me about uh, like urban urban design and that kind of that thinking. But I think like the like misinformation is obviously like a massive challenge that uh, like I don't have the, the answer for. But I think one of the key things is like trying to share those co-benefits and a lot of I think a lot of scientists don't, um, we, uh, uh, like we don't always focus on like all of the different co-benefits. Um, like the 15 minute city or the um, 10, like even better 10 minute city is so much better. It's better for like even, like a lot of people are opposing it because of COVID, but like it's better from a, a COVID perspective. Um, like, It's better for sustainability. It's better for social, uh, for mental and physical health. Um, and I think like the problem is that like scientists aren't salespeople or marketing people, and nor should they be. But um, I think like we need to figure out, and the media needs to support that as well. Like how do we, how do we share, how do we share research, and how do we share like research that's still evolving? Like a single paper is just like one step in the the narrative and yeah um i think that is presents a, a challenge in terms of like how do we uh think about like the, the broader uh context of how like each study fits in and 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 what are the like pros and cons of all of those things and have like that discussion uh and communicate the uncertainties that we have in our research and i think that's like one of the key things and especially one of the things that we learned from COVID around like uh, communicating risk is the countries that did really well were the ones that uh, communicated uncertainty, where the politicians communicated uncertainty, uh, supported by scientists and built the trust of their communities. And that's still like, obviously is, hasn't worked entirely, but because even in New Zealand, we've started to see like that starting to erode um but it's really going to be important for climate change because like we don't know uh because there is so much uncertainty around like so many aspects of it yeah i agree it's hard to communicate uncertainty and it works in certain places i don't know why in portugal people trust it like They are scientists and doctors a lot, so they just all got the vaccine and so on. But 
was very different from other places in Germany, for example, was very different. It's um it's an interesting phenomena, but um yeah, we won't have the solution here. Um so yeah, um the 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 slides are pinned on top of uh the room for everyone. And Tom, if you want to go through them, um yeah, the stage is yours to talk a little bit deeper now about your work. Thank you. Cool, thanks. Well, I guess I'll, um, my, I'm one of those people with slides that like, uh, really like steps through, like has far too many and steps through a lot of them. So uh, I'll do my best to like, um, I'll probably just jump. Unfortunately, they're all numbered. So, but um, so yeah, the, the study, like I said, is, is focusing on like isolation and or at, at its heart access and how that changes with sea level rise. Uh, and one of the key metrics that we were looking at here was, was isolation. And so if you jump to slide two, one of the like, big motivators, um, when we, this is a quote from someone uh, that uh, my colleague at the University of Maryland, uh, Professor Alison Riley, was working with. And this person said, like, look, we just moved from Deal Island Chance where our house had relatively good drainage and was on slightly higher ground, but we were much more concerned about road flooding in one or two places in particular. And that's the fear. So not so much the flooding on our property, but the loss of access and the hassle uh, and anxiety about whether or not like, we can go to the grocery store uh, or if we have to wait until after high tide. And that just, uh, they say, has just drains on your mind and enjoyment in, of living in the area. And we're seeing that um, now in, in New Zealand a lot where we've had a major cyclone uh, or a hurricane um, in, in uh, a, few um, a few months ago. And there's significant areas around the country that have been cut off. And, and like I have been isolated for a long time. And so when I, on slide three, like we're thinking about this in terms of long-term climate change adaptation. So the big question is like, how do we target funding and, uh, and where do we need to be working? And the question then is like, how many people, where and when are we doing that? And it, currently the, on slide four, the, the key kind of question that we've been operating around like um, traditionally is, is someone's home flooded? But as that person said, um, we have, uh, they were, they had fine drainage. Their house was, was, was more or less high and dry. Uh, but there was that potential for them being cut off. And so that's what we're suggesting uh, on uh, slide five and six is thinking about property isolation. What do we do? And, and do we do anything if someone's at risk of being cut off? Because technically their house is fine. And their property is fine. So by traditional adaptation thinking, we wouldn't, like our insurance wouldn't kick in, uh, and therefore um, they, they would essentially be unsupported. But if we think about uh, this, these people, this property losing road access because of um, flooding, then there's that potential to also lose infrastructure, like horizontal infrastructure that's often buried 
uh, alongside the road. Things like uh, electricity, in some places, uh, gas, uh, and water services. Um, flooding could become more likely because of the high groundwater table, and there could be lots of other impacts. So suddenly, um, we need to start thinking on slide seven, like how many people uh, are at risk of isolation versus at risk of inundation? And how does that spatial distribution compare? Like when we're thinking, are we thinking about the same people? Uh, if we're targeting funding based on isolation, uh, sorry, if we're targeting funding based on inundation, are we also already thinking about those people uh, that are at risk of isolation? And of course, what are the temporal, like, what are the, what are the time differences? Uh, is, it, is it fine for us to continue to consider uh, inundation? So on slide nine, we show how the number of people increase, uh, the number of people affected or the number of people burdened by sea level rise increases uh, when we consider isolation compared to inundation. And on slide 11, we show how that changes uh, under three different uh, under three different climate change scenarios. So this is the rate of uh, base, we're changing the rate of sea level rise here. So under a low uh, climate change future on the left hand side to a higher climate change future, and you can see that there is there is a potential that we get a significant amount of people isolated and inundated uh, in the next uh, and by by 2100. And so the way that we did that was looking at basically uh, taking the USA census areas and the neighborhood, the, the smallest census area that we could, and connecting those up to primary schools and fire stations. And under different sea level rise increments, saying, can you still access those? Uh, the, can you access a school and a fire station? And if not, you're considered isolated. So, as I said, slide 13 basically is saying the number of people that we uh, that are burdened is significantly higher when we start to think about isolation. But on slide 14, what we're showing is that those people are also going to be affected significantly earlier than we're anticipating. And that basically just shifts the the urgency of uh, of thinking about this, and this is not including uh, demographic shifts. So there's another paper um, a few years ago that was looking at how we're continuing to invest and build and populate uh, coastal areas. So there's essentially we need to really start reversing those trends. And on slide 15 was the other question, was how does this change the spatial distribution of the of the risk? And this is one of the, this is probably one of the like more important uh, questions, is that some, like Florida for example, you have relatively high inundation, but you, and then slightly higher isolation. But Florida knows that, well, I was going to say Florida knows that it needs to adapt to climate change, but what I'm going to say is that Florida should know that it, uh, like this, our study hasn't changed that, that kind of importance. But some of the other states where you have uh, communities that are not at risk from 
inundation, so direct flooding, those states that have high isolation risk, they're the ones that may not be being, that may not be thinking about the need to adapt, may not be receiving or even considered for adaptation funding. So this is where we need to um, start to broaden our perspective of what, what does it mean uh, to adapt and what are the requirements or the, uh, what are the triggers that makes a community eligible for adaptation planning. On slide 16, if you're interested, there's a link there to an interactive dashboard that you can explore that, and zoom in on the uh, different communities. You can toggle the, uh, the sea level rise um, amount and change between isolation and inundation. Slide 17 shows that how that urgency of adaptation planning changes. This is a fairly like uh, esoteric graph, uh, but essentially what it's saying is we, in areas that, when we start thinking about isolation, Isolation could occur 50 years earlier than inundation. So that's how much sooner we need to be start, uh, starting to think about this. So in terms of what this means for adaptation, the challenge is like, as I uh, mentioned at the start, our adaptation funding and our insurance is often based on flood risk alone. And that challenge means that we're potentially underestimating what that burden looks like. And assuming that we don't think it's appropriate for people to, to stay in homes without access, without uh, horizontal infrastructure, we might see that isolation is forcing people to relocate sooner. That has implications for how we do our planning, how we do our adaptive planning, when we think about uh, what are called signals and triggers, which are a way of saying, well, when this threshold is reached, that means action is needed to support a community. So you might think about a, a really uh, uh, intuitive example of a trigger is once the risk is so high uh, or, or exceeds the threshold that insurance starts to um, increase premiums or even abandon areas. That is a is a trigger for either uh, retreating or relocating the community, or building a seawall, or uh, yeah, those starting to think about what that, that adaptation looks like, and is how we how we're thinking about how intervention should be made. So I think it's important that we start to think about access as being one of those triggers. Also, it starts to think about not just these direct risks. So we would consider flood, like flood risk to a property as a direct risk, but an isolation is an indirect risk. So it's one of the, it's a case of, well, you've had this flood on a road and then what happens? So, and then people are cut off or, and then, or the supermarket is cut off or the hospital is cut off. But another type of indirect risk is if a flood affects an electricity station, and then a water pump loses power, and then a hospital doesn't have any water, so can't operate, and then someone else, uh, residents don't have access to healthcare. So this is like what's called cascading or indirect risk. 
And so a lot of our research at the moment is how do we start to factor in these indirect risks and how much does that increase uh, the quantum of the risk that we're thinking about? And how do we adapt to that? How do we uh, think about that in terms of making sure people have the things that they need uh, in their day-to-day? But on slide 20, uh, it's essentially isolation is raising that question. Okay, at what point is a property no longer habitable? And generally we consider human rights uh, to, uh, there's a, right, a human right to adequate housing. But like, what do we consider as adequate? Do we think about uh, design? Do, like we do say access to uh, social services, but what does that mean? Uh, is that... And, and how do we um, how do we think about isolation and access into that and, and infrastructure services into that kind of mix? So, and what's that tolerance for that uh, for that loss? And of course, the very that quote from uh, the residents there were like really highlighted the impact on mental health and well-being, and we know that that has cascading uh, or indirect impacts on the local economy. So how do we factor all of this in as we start thinking about it? So slide 21, again, uh, one of the questions that we're posing is uh, what does property isolation mean? Like, yes, people are cut off, but there's also that risk of impact to their horizontal infrastructure, that potential for groundwater uh, rise and um, higher seas to reduce the drainage and therefore make flooding more likely. And there could be other impacts. And so that's one of our big questions is, and a lot of our ongoing research at the moment is thinking, how do we think about what those other impacts are? So I'll wrap it up there. Yeah, thank you so much um, for this um yeah for giving us um this um insight into the, all these different factors that we kind of ignore when we talk about climate change i think especially the mental health factor that kind of persists even like um after a hurricane or uh heat wave extended heat wave where people were kind of in these situations that they can't really escape the mental health impact on the population is quite significant and um so yeah again i think this is a really important research and um that you're working in and designing cities in different ways so um are people, I know this is again a very broad question and I'll promise I'll go more into your actual no, no, no. paper, okay. but are people starting to listen and um, redesigning? I heard, for example, in German news and in other places that people are discussing to redesign cities for heat waves, but yep. I don't hear too much about the sea level rise and resilience, building resilience there, because I, I would assume it's just way more expensive. So so are people like uh, cities investing in this? Yeah, so that, yep. huge, huge conversation in New Zealand at the moment. Um, 
and in lots of different communities around the east, uh, around the US coast. Uh, and isolation is now definitely being considered in that in terms of land use planning and asset management. Uh, thinking about stranded assets as well from different infrastructure providers. Uh, so it's still early days, but yeah, definitely it's, um, it's, it's uh, becoming a real uh, part of the conversation. And largely because, uh, at least in, in New Zealand, we've, we've been seeing those impacts. Like we're seeing people being cut off and isolated. Uh, so it's a shame that it's a shame that uh, people don't hear the warning, but they definitely uh, they definitely start to understand when when they're reading it actually playing out or when it's happening to uh, to communities that they either live in or or know about. Yeah, thank you uh, for the answer and Joyce I wanted to give you a chance to ask a question or comment and yeah yeah um, <clears throat> I, you know I missed a lot of the first part of it um, are, are you considering places like um, you know like Venice Italy and um, I, I'm just curious about some of the places you're considering because I, I missed that part of it thanks thanks um, yeah, so the study so far is, was uh, focused on um, the coast of the US and I'm doing another study in New Zealand. Uh, Venus obviously is a quite a different story because they've adapted to um, like not having road access. Uh, and I was in Venus a few months ago and it's like so cool because then they're not uh, yeah, not reliant on, well, they have, there are no, like, very, very few, if any, uh, cars on the island. Um, but it kind of, what that, uh, there's something called the adaptation effect, which basically means that communities that aren't familiar with different hazards are, like, more, more prone to them because they don't know how to manage it. And I think that's where, like, we need to start transitioning some of our more car dependent areas to being more mode uh, agnostic. So being able, being more, uh, like in New Zealand, there's like very few ferries, even though we're such a coastal nation. So there's, there are gonna be different, uh, the scale of the problem is gonna be quite different based on that, uh, that community and that kind of already, the, the existing culture and, um, and norms. Yeah, thank you. Um, it is an interesting topic. I had not really thought about it, so it's really great that you're you're researching it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's interesting how some cities along the way have adapted really well to something that will be prevalent in more places. Venice. And then I keep saying Sevilla, for example, is really well designed for heat, for dry heat. And um, I think they are, uh, Singapore is very well designed for humidity and heat. So I think there are a few cities that people can kind of see as an example, but not 
too many, uh, I would assume. So, um, yeah, it's interesting, that example. Thank you, Joyce. Hi, Dan. Did you have a question or comment that you wanted to uh, join, to tell us? Yeah, well, I'm just joining late, but I, I, I think the conversation is about how with sea level rise, homes will not just be flooded, but they'll be isolated from other areas uh, by flooding sort of around them as opposed to on them. But I would, if that's, I think that's correct. Um, and then uh, I would, I would also suggest though that if you're looking at that, um, it's not going to happen like that directly. What's going to happen is there will be destruction of infrastructure all over the place. I mean, one example would be you know, waste, wastewater treatment plants, which are very often near the water, they'll, they'll go first, and that will affect uh, water, you know, just water supply, food supply, all these things will be going haywire all at the same time. In other words, we won't be looking at solving climate adaption problems by looking at individual problems. It's going to be multiple things all happening simultaneously that will make it much more difficult to address them because you'll be, you know, <laughs> I think the technical phrase is all hell will be breaking loose. So I think so. But this is an interesting thing because I actually haven't seen this particular thing before where you take a look at how many homes are going to get isolated. But again, I, I think we're not going to deal with it just because they're isolated. We're going to deal with it because infrastructure all over the place is collapsing around all of those homes, the ones that are underwater, the ones that are isolated, and the ones that are not isolated as well will be having trouble too. Thanks. Yeah, and the uh, isolation is a really good proxy for that uh, all hell breaking loose because of the uh, co-location of a lot of assets with roading infrastructure. So it's a good proxy for starting to think about where those areas are that need to be considered and how soon they need to be considered. And like we're definitely seeing that uh, it is definitely more of an indication of communities and the rather than individual property. And there are significant numbers of New Zealand communities and communities in sort of the northern part of the East east coast and the northern part of the west coast of the u.s um where there are communities that are dependent that are up high uh potentially a lot of their services are up high but the main road in and out is along the coast and so there are those kind of issues and it's important uh at the very least to be aware of of where they are and what that could look like um but yeah, definitely there's no um, uh, a lot of like all of our research is thinking about this like uh, and kind of the whole point of the research is to be thinking about that those interconnected systems and other research that we're doing is looking at like those cascading or indirect effects so that you can see how uh, well if the electricity plant fails then the water pump isn't working. But it's, a, yeah, there are still, how do we start to quantify that or, or at least estimate where those effects might be occurring, what the magnitude of those effects are and kind of, kind of when they might occur. 
is really important for on the ground, like adaptation planning. Yeah, but there's this uh, moment in time where things are falling apart and your government is still functioning. And then just a little while later, there isn't any government functioning. There isn't any response to the problems you're trying to deal with. You're kind of on your own. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Anderson, climate scientist who said famously, you know, it's over 10 years ago, he said this, he said, at four degrees, you know, you know, end of the century when we're getting serious sea level rise, um, maybe by the way, as much as 10 feet by then, um, if, if, the, if the AMOC shuts down in mid-century, but uh, even with six feet, that's still a lot. Um, but he said, you know, at four degrees of warming, which is what we're on track for if we don't uh, start taking some serious action, um, that, uh, that four degrees of warming is incompatible with an organized global community. <laughs> which is which is a subtle which is a phrase you have to think about for a moment but then you think about i think it's very much related to what we're talking about right now this this idea of adapting the way we adapt today to flooding and to hurricanes we're talking about a very different time when things are happening much you know happening on a constant basis there's no time to rebuild there's no money to rebuild they're focused on other things and uh, so we have to uh, it's a quote uh, that I made in another clubhouse room this morning is that uh, James Lovelock, who's a famous scientist who died a couple years ago, um, said, uh, he said it's too late, you know, to, to do all these kind of minor things that we're trying to do. And someone said, don't say that because it gives us nothing to do. And he answered, on the contrary, it gives us uh, uh, you know, plenty of things to do. It's just not the things you want to do. So I think that's what, when we get into adaption planning, I think that's, that's a, something we should keep in the back of our mind is like, what will the world actually be like when we're adapting? And therefore, what should we be doing now to avoid the need for adapting? Now, we will need to adapt. We have to do it right now. There's no question about it. But if we, if we kind of give up on mitigating and only go to adaption, then I think we've lost the game, as they say. Thanks. Right. And I don't think... Um... Yeah, there's certainly, you won't be hearing from me that we're not uh, not mitigating, but especially in New Zealand, like that's a big question is what do we do if uh, when if or when global systems shut down? And uh, like, it is really interesting because I do a lot of work with communities plan and, and doing that planning, but it's probably the wrong approach to go in and say, look, we're all fucked and uh, we like, even though that is like, frankly, a massive concern of, of mine and many of the people on my team. Uh, but like, we have to take them on a journey as well and starting to identify where those areas are and, and how do we start to support them so that we can say, well, look, these are some of the options, but maybe the best option is to just move, move out of that area entirely. Uh, because you're right that we, like that one, like, and that's almost already here in New Zealand is that we're just saying this constant state of this an, an, an emergency somewhere. There's some flooding, there's some disaster. Uh, and you're, so you're in this, as you say, like a constant state of rebuild. Um, and how do we get communities to like, really start to have that long-term thinking so that they can be more like long-term sustainable, both from a resilient uh, adaptation perspective and from that mitigation perspective. Um, yeah, 
but it's definitely a. Um, it's funny you mentioned New Zealand because when people ask me where should we move, I tell them New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're that's doing the place this. to go because uh, <laughs> you want a place that's civilized and is as far away. Because what do you need? You need food, shelter, and security, right? That's what you need. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and New Zealand is pretty good on the first two. And uh, you're, by the way, your your geography is good too because you know you're, yeah, yeah, exactly. you're hilly, <laughs> your mountains. Yeah. You know you you go up from the coast, and that's good. And then and the last thing you want is security. And being the most isolated kind <laughs> of country, that uh, also does I help at the, the drought maps. This is old stuff, and I'm sure they change over time. But I look. When you look at drought maps for the 2060s, it looks really dire, you know, most places of the world, except for New Zealand. <laughs> it was like <laughs> the one place where it wasn't like an in incredible drought. Um, and of course, uh, Australia is getting walloped right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, so it's a good place to go. And so, yes, I, so I would focus on adaption in New Zealand. It's a place, <laughs> yeah. it's a, and you might also want to figure out how to handle all the refugees that are going to be coming there, too. I know. I know there's yeah there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of inter interconnected challenges that, that are yeah starting yeah, to be yeah, very front of mind. New Zealand, at least during the pandemic, seemed to have good leadership and maybe sensible people. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it's always the case, but that's what I heard. Your prime minister helped you get through the pandemic better than a yeah, lot of fantastic. people. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and I was also going to say you know I think. In a way, I mean, a lot of a lot of the benefit of what you're doing, too, may just be that because you are pointing out additional people that will be more affected in the shorter term, you're going to be educating groups of people that may not have been very educated about it. And now mm -hmm. it's become more concrete and maybe they will take more action politically to influence their governments. So that, that's yeah. another thought. And that's a really good point and making it more personal rather than just being, oh, it's the, the problem of those people over there. Um, and yeah, especially when like we've got an election coming up and it still is like unfathomable to me that it's not the big election issue. Like even with the heat waves overseas, the hurricane that we had earlier in the year, the flooding that we've had recently, um, people are still like, yeah, very preoccupied with uh, other things. Humans are not designed to handle. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. I mean, to think about how we evolved. We evolved worrying about, you know, a tiger going to eat you right now. I mean, a problem two weeks out was not something you worried about. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether you survived exactly. or not, right? So our brains are very focused on uh, being certain kinds of threats. I did a talk on this. It's, it's the threats are whether it's visible, immediate, uh, has historical precedent, personal consequences, simple causality, and caused by an enemy. And climate change, until very recently, had none of those. Um, but, you know, a, lot, a lion showing up had like all of those. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now it's becoming visible, it's becoming a little immediate, somewhat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the only reason we're even paying any attention to it in the last few years. We didn't pay any attention, really, before that. And we're still not doing anything, but uh, so it will change as things become more visible, more you know, become more of a real current threat, and uh, then we'll we'll do we'll do more action. But uh, I know the fact that we don't vote on it, even though people like in the United States, I think seventy percent of the people say they're concerned and want action on climate, and like no one votes on it, 
right? Yeah. So it's not not a not a priority. I um, do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, everyone in this room <laughs> maybe, but you know we're a small number here, so um, yeah. So um, that to me, that's actually the biggest challenge is the psychology of it all. Yeah, the fact totally. that we don't know how to, we, 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 we know all the science we need to know. <laughs> I mean, we'll learn more, we'll learn more, but we certainly know all about how dangerous it is. We even know, you know, pretty roughly what's going to happen. We don't know exactly when and where, but we know roughly what's going to happen. Yep. It's already and it happening. hasn't changed much in the last 30, like that kind of uh, science hasn't changed much in the last 30 years. And we're still, well, I would say the last six months has changed. It's getting a lot more serious very quickly right now. Oh, shockingly yeah. so. In terms of, uh, yeah, we've known that this is coming for so long. and it's. Uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, we need to, uh, one of our challenges as well is, is keeping the, keeping the energy amongst people that are aware of this. And I'm always concerned when, when my friends and other and colleagues and researchers in the space just start to like say how they wish they just did other jobs that weren't related so they could just not have to think about it and be, uh, be worried all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a challenging space, but we can't just, yeah, but I can't just ignore it. I think it's actually the most exciting area to work in and the most inspiring area to work I in. I found it really motivating. Well, yeah. Yeah. What else do you think of? It's like every, in fact, the, what happens is like nothing else really seems important, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what? You, you care about what? Who cares about that? You know, like, yeah. you know, I know. I try not to say that to my. But it, but it makes life easier in some ways. You <laughs> don't sweat the you don't sweat the small things anymore. Yeah, totally. Yeah, whenever I, I'm in a lot of these rooms with Dan, and whenever we get into this discussion, or oftentimes things will get kind of dark, and I'll I'll try to turn it around and say, "This should activate you. Don't get discouraged," because unfortunately, in the U.S a significant number of environmentally concerned voters do not vote because they're yeah. too discouraged. And they could make all the difference because it's kind of close in our elections, you know, a lot of them, so. I know, I think it's especially rough because you guys, like, as Americans have so much more influence, um, like a, a vote in the US in terms of uh, like broader global climate influence compared to the vote that we have in New Zealand. Um, so, but you, you're right. Like, and I think it's definitely one of the things that gets me out of bed like every day is like, this is the most important thing. Um, and just figuring out how to, I think it, like being a researcher is such a privileged position because I do get to work on what I think is the most important thing. Um, so. Hey, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, in your spare time, you should come to Clubhouse. We have a lot of environment rooms and Dan has a great room on Sundays about, uh, we talk about climate. And he has climate scientists on sometimes, like just the other day. Uh, cool, so yeah. Cool. No, it's great to connect them. Um, yeah, we had uh, Leon Simons on, he told us that next year will be 1.7 C above <laughs> the pre-industrial Yeah. That's, that's pretty mild. Yeah. You hope that that yeah. will trigger okay political action. We'll see. I think I'm naive, but I hope. Thanks. 
I'm hoping as well. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, very practical decisions need to be made. You know, the in the last storm in North Carolina, the Pfizer, um, a big Pfizer um, production plant was destroyed, and um, which leads then to, you know, not having enough medications of certain medications available right now for the population. So, you know, the permits to build things in certain areas should just not be given out. Um, until uh, further notice, basically, that are important for, you know, the survival of a large population. Um, I mean, data centers already have kind of this risk management. Um, I don't know why, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies and all of these didn't do that. Um, I guess their risk management is, is very different. But uh, do you see, because I saw that you also do consulting right in this areas, are companies hiring scientists like you to have like a risk management plan for the future? Or is that not happening at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, I feel like consulting is a, is a interesting word for what we what we do um essentially i was doing this research and was getting very frustrated that no one was um well like you write a paper and it what what happens like no one really looks at it or sees it and it's not useful but we were doing a lot of work as part of the research with communities and i wanted to make sure that it was like actually being translated and communicated in a way that was useful and so we were using interactive dashboards um and but uh, in order to actually like make that work, um, I we needed a team of uh, developers, and so we've um, yeah we've we've set up a team uh, that does this and works for councils around New Zealand, and works for companies around New Zealand, uh, and shows what those risks are, what the um, uh, how they're changing over time, like right down at the very like the asset level, but also right up at the regional level. Uh, and so, like, essentially, it's uh, yeah, mostly um, uh, very much like translating that research into impact. Um, and the company was the best way and easiest way to like actually set that up in order to to make that that jump and difference. So, but it is suddenly like. I think the feeling that I'm getting is that the, the switch has been flicked in a lot of ways and it is the conversation in many companies around like, what are they doing? Um, not for the, like largely for economic reasons, but like at least it's, at least it's happening. Um, and, but there's still a huge amount of work and research needed into how we actually uh, do that in a way that's impactful and, and forces them not to just think about their risk, but also mitigation at the same time. So they're doing things properly. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you um, for that. And I, I, I know that, you know, pe scientists want always to be sound and, um, you know, data-based uh, solutions. 
and but isn't in this case the future quite unpredictable like is there a way to kind of say you know this is the the most the closest we can get to um, have this prediction and this this could be the solution and we design it that way because we don't have a better way to predict what the future entails like do we have to move to just faster reaction you know i'm also thinking about the canadian fires that yeah. are causing you know millions and millions of people having being exposed to to this polluted air you know kids growing up uh, with that and um i just think you know sometimes because we we are very quick at polluting right we don't think about the consequences the, the, do we yeah. need to be quicker at trying to solve it like i was saying why don't we try to do cloud seeding in the spring so it doesn't get as bad but then people say oh you don't know the outcome but we keep doing you know we keep polluting the air without thinking what you know running prediction models so why don't do something that could maybe prevent you know loss of a lot of also co2 uptake right what these forests do and production of oxygen i don't know what what do you think yeah i think um like the way that we're managing the uncertainty is through like what we call adaptive planning or like a dynamic approach so where we uh it is like trying to make the system slightly more agile or more um uh nimble it's still like a society's already built to to do that so there's a lot of structural changes that are necessary but we're, we are seeing that starting to happen in parts of new zealand um i think but it, it is like how embracing uncertainty but i i'm still like definitely of the i would take like a precautionary approach with a lot of the like geoengineering which yeah i'm i think well i think we need to start stop polluting um and and figure out how to do like uh carbon extraction i wouldn't be super quick to um start putting other things into the atmosphere just because of the the potential to like really yeah, screw things up more um until we're like but you're right, there needs to be that balance between certainty and um, uh, and uncertainty. But I definitely think that um, we need to be reducing emissions uh, as as a higher priority um, before doing some of those other, uh, other interventions. But there are definitely other people that are more informed on, or scientists that are more informed on that kind of balance and the trade-offs and I am. I know what comes up in our discussions with regard to um, you might call it geoengineering but um, they've pointed out that, that that we've done uh, there are natural experiments with volcanoes putting a lot of uh, sulfur dioxide up into the air and cooling the planet for a year or two and so that might be the least dangerous Thing to do because you put it up in the high atmosphere, it could like last for a year, and um, and volcanoes do it anyway, you know. Anyway, 
access to mm. what possibilities. Until we can get everything, you know, because everything is slow. All the things that we need to do are need to be scaled up. And we don't even have the political will to do them yet. And so they'll take a long time to get going. And in the meantime, we're, we may get into a lot of trouble. So anyway. So. Yeah. Thanks. But uh, Katarina, I need to um, jump to my next meeting. Uh, oh, yes, of course. Um, yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, well, thank you so much for coming again. And uh, we want to, you know, uh, it was really an honor speaking with you. And we want to really cheer you on for the work you're doing. And uh, we will be really curious to follow your work with the next uh, steps and publications. And I hope you get, you know, a lot of funding and a lot of people listening to you. <laughs> it's Thank our you. hope to survive. Basically, it's yeah. not altruistic also. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to yeah. tell other people about your work and refer them to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to, to join you guys. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was a fun, fun conversation. And, and thanks for, um, for hosting. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And yeah, Dan is also really a great person if yeah if you want to join him sometimes in his rooms it's really great rooms he runs so and thanks everyone and yeah tom i hope we'll hear you again someday um and um yeah again thank you and we wish you all the best cool thanks everyone um, all the best uh bye bye i'll close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you bye